What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbors? How and why should I care about those around me, even my enemies? In our 10-part series titled Loving as We've Been Loved, we're exploring how God's great love for us is the foundation for both our loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Join us as we study the scriptures and see what this looks like in our everyday lives. Alrighty, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. Welcome if uh, you are coming in for the first time. My name is Steve, one of the elders, and uh, going to be preaching this morning. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 1 would be a good place to turn to. Um, just while you are turning there, just to let you guys know that um, my wife and I and our kids are taking a couple weeks vacation. Um, after church today, we are, we're going to be going away for two weeks, just getting a bit of a rest. So if you don't see us for the next couple Sundays, for the next two weeks, we are in fact going to be on the beach and uh, relaxing and doing not uh, little else other than reading and getting some necessary sun. Um, I went out yesterday with my kids to a soccer game and Caden was proudly showing off everyone my farmer's tan, which I'm not going to show you right now, but I do need to work on my tan a little bit better than uh, my kids. So let's pray before we get into the word this morning. Father, thank you for what you've done already, Lord Jesus, through the amazing time of worship we had. Thank you for speaking to us so clearly. Thank you for uh, just filling our hearts with your love and with your presence. Thank you for always being so close and so near to us, Lord Jesus. And we just want to say in response to your love for us, we want to say we love you, Lord. We love you with all of our hearts. We love you with all of our minds. We love you with all of our strength, Lord God. We love you with everything that we have. And we just are so thankful for, for sending your son, uh, Jesus, to die on the cross for us. And, and Jesus, thank you that you were raised from the dead. And, 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 and for those of us who, who believe in you, and, and, and Lord, you, we, we are clothed in your righteousness. We are clothed in your holiness. And what amazing truth that is, Lord God. And I pray, Father, that your love would just continue to minister and manifest itself here, Lord God. Continue to, to, to uh, just encourage us with your love, we pray, Heavenly Father. Through the word, as we, as we get into the word, help us, Lord, to be strengthened. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to, to teach us, to instruct us, and to change us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Fulfilling the greatest, sorry, fulfilling the great commission by obeying the greatest command is a, a phrase and a statement you've heard a lot spoken here at Church in the City. It's, it's uh, something that we've given ourselves to, not just this year as a preaching kind of series, but um, it really is the, the summary statement of what is our desire here at Church in the City, and that is to, to see the Great Commission fulfilled as we obey the greatest command. It's, it's birthed out of this desire to see Jesus exalted, to, to see people coming into a life-transforming relationship with Him, and as a consequence of that, seeing our, our city and seeing our neighborhoods and the, and the cities and nations of the world impacted by this good news of the gospel. The Great Commission is uh, listed or given in Matthew 28. Jesus, uh, just prior to his ascension, stands before his disciples and he speaks this amazing commission over them. And by virtue of us being part of the people of God, he speaks this commission over us. He says to them, he says, go and make disciples, go and make followers of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations. We must remember that we are part of this incredible big picture that God, this big picture thing, this big picture move that God is doing into the nations of the world. 
It's not just a case of getting saved. It's not just a case of coming into relationship with Jesus. But when we give our hearts to Jesus, we are added into the people of God. Uh, Jesus actually says to his disciples, follow me as, and I will make you fishers of men. So it's, it's in the following, it's in the, the journey of being part of God's people that God changes us and God transforms us. And, and this inheritance that we have is the nations of the world. Jesus says that repeatedly. For In fact, the, the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation repeats time and time again this, this call, this commission that we have to go to the nations. Jesus says in Matthew 24, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus says to us, go and and make disciples of all nations, and then he continues, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. I want to just stress very importantly that this aspect of learning about God and learning about Jesus, it's not an intellectual pursuit. Please don't see it as some sort of scholarly thing that we do. You know, nothing against getting a degree in seminary or or whatever, but but this pursuit of Jesus is not to figure God out. I'm always particularly weary of of people or, or or efforts to try and work God out. We can't do that. Any God that I can figure out is not a God worth serving. Let me tell you that right now. If I can fit God into this brain, that's not a God I want to worship. But we are called to to come into relationship with Jesus. And as as we draw close to him, we get to understand his will and his way. I think Psalm 34 describes wonderfully this model of learning. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's our model for learning. So he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's this, this great commission that Jesus gives us, gives his disciples, gives the church. And as I mentioned, our motivation to fulfill the great commission is the greatest commandment. Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, uh, the Pharisees pull him aside and say, Jesus, tell us, what is the, what is the greatest commandment in all of, of Scripture? And Jesus says this, he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. We've spent the first two preaching series of this year focusing exactly on that. In our series through John, we answered the question, who is this God that we're called to love? And Jesus here tells us that he is the Lord your God. We spent the last 10 weeks looking at this notion of Jesus being Lord. What does that mean? But I love in Matthew 22 that Jesus doesn't just stop there and say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. He carries on. He says this. He says, the second is just like the first one. And, and, and he pulls this, this really obscure commandment out of Leviticus 19. If you were reading the book of Leviticus, you would never even see it. But he says, this commandment is just as important as loving God. He says this, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's going to be our focus for the next 10 weeks as we preach through a series called Loving As We Have Been Loved. Uh, How does God's love for us shape our ability to be able to love others? How does God pouring out his uh, undeserved love and his his unearned favor on us, how does that shape the way that we are to to love each other? I'm sure uh, you guys, like me, at times have, have read scripture probably a thousand times over 
and never really kind of seen the issue or the, the key truth of what that scripture is trying to communicate. I've done it over and over again. And as we were putting this series together, Matthew 22 verse 39 was that exact verse that, that for the first time, it really dawned on me what Matthew 22 39 is saying. Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it dawned on me that that's all good and right as long as you love yourself. The question is, do we? Or or maybe more specifically, how do we love ourselves? Do we love ourselves well? Do we love ourselves correctly? Do we love ourselves in the way that God loves us? Because if we can't, we will never be able to love our neighbor, according to Matthew 22, verse 39. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this week and next week. Next week, Nate is going to be preaching about loving our neighbor. But today, before we get there, I'm going to try and answer the question, how do we love ourselves well? How do we love ourselves in the way that God loves us? Like all all good sermons, we need a a quote from a famous person, and uh, I came across this rather interesting interview that Madonna, the queen of rock and roll, the queen of pop music back in my day, I'm showing my age, but uh, Madonna gave this really interesting interview with Vogue magazine, um, speaking about the reason for her drive to succeed. Listen to what she said. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre and inadequate, It's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I soon feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. And I think what is quite as interesting about this statement is Madonna, I think perhaps more than most people, actually gets some of the struggle that a lot of us have in our hearts. This desire to discover the verdict of whether we are important and whether we are valuable in order to love ourselves well. And we live in a world where advertisers will tell you that the kind of car that you drive or the skincare product that you use is the way for you to find your value and your importance. And I will guess that most of us, most of the time, are smart enough and aware that that is not the case. We realize how shallow it is, even though at times we probably give ourselves into, we, we, we give into retail therapy perhaps a little more than we should. But generally we realize that that what we own and and what we have is not the way to find our value and our importance. But then the question has to be asked, where do we find the verdict? How do we find our sense of worth and our sense of value? How do we develop a, a good or a healthy, and by healthy I mean biblical, how do we develop a biblical self image? That's the question we're gonna be asking and answering today. Before I do that, I want to quickly just set two little parameters that I think are essential to understand before we discover what it means to have a biblical or healthy self-image. The first one is this, and I need you to listen because it sounds like a little bit of mental gymnastics, but hopefully you'll understand the point. As contradictory as it sounds, you cannot find your identity by focusing 
on only finding your identity. You cannot find your identity by focusing only on finding your identity. What I mean by that is you cannot find yourself by removing yourself from everything and everyone around you. And I see this in the years of being in ministry time and time again where where people are trying to discover something of what they're called to and what their purpose in life is and they feel like by, by removing themselves from church, removing themselves from friends and family, removing themselves from the world in which they live is the way to find their identity. And can I tell you, friends, there has to be a context to the question, who am I? If I came to you with a piece of string and said, how long is this piece of string? Is this piece of string long? You, you would say, well, that's a stupid question because there has to be a context to that. Compared to What? And that's the point I'm trying to make. When we ask the question, who am I? We need to understand there's a context to that question. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking, uh, teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he, and, and he makes this statement. This will hopefully illustrate what I'm trying to say. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Notice Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after blessing. The point that Jesus is making, I think, here is is when we go after something far bigger than blessing, when we go after righteousness, when we go after right standing with God, blessing comes to us. We can paraphrase that verse, happy are those who are interested in something way more than just happiness. And that's the point I'm trying to make, friends. When, we, when we're answering the, this question, who am I, trying to discover our self-image, we need to know there is a greater context. And that greater context, which is my second point, is this. Our context to discovering who we are is God. We cannot ever hope to know ourselves until we first know God. And we'll never know God unless God chooses to reveal himself to us. And fortunately, he has. John chapter 14, Jesus says these amazing words. He says, if you know me, if you know me, if you come to be in relationship with me, you will know my Father as well. And I want to say, friends, knowing ourselves and knowing God are inseparably linked to one another. We cannot ever hope to know ourselves outside of first knowing God. God's created it that way. I spent, I spent an entire week trying to come up with a, a really good illustration to drive this point home. And the best I can come up with is my left leg and my right leg. And, and my left leg, in order for me to walk, my left leg is absolutely dependent on my right leg. I can't allow my left leg to go too far from my right leg. Otherwise, or if my right leg kind of lags behind, I'll never be able to walk effectively or I'll look really stupid walking like, like that. But it's, it's when the left leg and the right leg work perfectly in sync, then I'm able to be the person I'm called to be. And it's the same with knowing God and knowing ourselves. We'll never know ourselves without knowing God. The two are meant to be tied together. The reason I asked you to turn to Genesis is because other than Jesus, I don't think there is a better example of someone knowing God because they knew themselves or knowing themselves because they knew God than Adam and Eve prior to the fall. And I want to read three verses. I want you to read three verses with me. And then we're going to look at three very important keys or clues to discovering a healthy or biblical self-image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Sorry, 26 through 28. 
Let's read together. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the, the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Three things that we're going to look at. Three clues that I think make up a, a biblical or healthy self-image. First one is the importance of value or worth. It answers the question, am I important? Or am I valuable? The second thing we're going to look at is love, which we, God has been wonderfully emphasizing this morning already. That answers the question, am I acceptable? And third thing that we're going to look at is purpose. Am I unique? Is there something special, something significant, something that only God has called me to do? Is there a unique contribution that I bring to the world? Let's look at each of those one by one quickly. First one is value. Verse 26, Jesus, God says this. He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And then in verse 27, it goes on to say, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is such a vast topic, not a topic that we don't have time to, to dive into with any level of detail, this topic of, of what it means to be created as the image of God. But suffice to say that your worth and your value, my worth and my value is intimately linked to the reality that God has created you and me as his image. And as Isaiah 43 tells us, it is in order to display his glory. And when we, when we grasp the, the, the reality of that, I hope that we are blown away by the, the amazing endless possibilities of what that means. But also probably at times the, the tragedy of not fulfilling the potential that we each have in us because we are created in God's image. I used to love watching The West Wing. Anyone remember the series The West Wing? Again, probably showing my age. The West Wing was a political drama that was on TV uh, probably 15 years ago. And it was about a, a president by the name of Jeb Bartlett, and, um, played by Martin Sheen. And when Jeb Bartlett was voted into power, in his first couple days, he was in the Oval Office. And one of his best friends was his campaign manager. And his friend said to Jeb Bartlett, he said, he said what do I call you when, I'm, when we're in the Oval Office together? And he, do I call you Jeb or do I call you Mr. President? To which Jeb Bartlett answered, I want you to call me Mr. President because I need to remember that I don't just represent myself. I represent an entire nation. And friends, I think that's something of, of what we need to grasp and remember, that when we live here on earth, we're not just representing ourselves. We're, we are representing the very one who created us. Claire prayed that so wonderfully this morning, that we house, we hold the, the glory of God. And we have endless opportunities and possibilities to display that glory to the world. If that's not enough to convince you of your worth and value, 
then I want you to listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Paul writes, he says, God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible teaches, friends, that Jesus had you on his heart, and he had inscribed your name on the palm of his hands when he died. Isaiah 49 tells us that. God had you in mind when Jesus died on the cross. So to answer the question, am I important or or am I worth it? I want to say, yes, you're made as God's image and you are valuable enough for Jesus to lay his life down for you. The second thing we want to look at is uh, this, this concept of love. And that, that is the, the question, uh, what, what makes you acceptable or, or what makes you lovable? Sometimes in the scriptures, when you come across the word righteousness, the, the word righteousness means exactly that. Are you acceptable? Are you in right standing with God? Is there something in you that makes you lovable in God's eyes? That's what, something of what the word righteousness means. I want you to think of a scenario of perhaps you being invited to, to two parties, two functions on a Saturday night. One a casual barbecue and the other maybe a, a big charity event downtown. And unfortunately you get the two kind of uh, uh, invitations mixed up. And uh, you arrive at this charity event downtown at the downtown Hilton wearing jeans and a t-shirt. And everyone else is wearing black tie and ball, and ball, ball, ball gowns. What are they called? Ball gowns, yeah. So just, just put, kind of put, put yourself in that scenario. As you, as you walk through the room at, at the Hilton Hotel in your jeans and t-shirt, you see everyone in black tie. And immediately, you know, because I certainly would feel this way, you would feel, I'm not acceptable. I, I, I'm not, I don't fit in. In biblical terms, I'm not righteous. I feel unrighteous. It's associated with the the sense of of carrying shame and and guilt. And and I want to say, friends, I think this is something every single one of us desire, this desire to be acceptable, this desire to be in right standing with others, but most importantly with God. Every one of us know what it's like to wonder, ask the question, did I do enough to get that job? Or did I do enough to get a second date? Or did I do enough to secure that contract? That contract? Or did I do enough to earn the favor of my mom and dad? Every single one of us knows what that's like. Before he knew Jesus, Paul admitted that he found something of his worth or his righteousness in law keeping or in religion. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, he says, You know my pedigree. A strict and devout adherent to God's law. A fiery defender of the purity of my religion. Even to the point of persecuting the church. A meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law book. You see, for Paul, righteous, uh, his righteousness was found in keeping rules. His righteousness was found in, 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 in following the system. And I think some of you sitting here are exactly like that. Maybe others find their righteousness in power, the need to always be right, or maybe in control, the need to always be in charge. Are you perhaps like that? You, you find a sense of worth, you find a sense of value in, in always being right or in always being in charge. For me, my struggle 
where I, try, where I sometimes find my sense of worth is in being accepted. I hate the notion of not being liked. It, it, it led me astray before I knew Jesus, led me terribly astray. I don't have time to tell you the stories of, of what my insecurity got, got, how it caused such trouble in my life. I was so susceptible to peer pressure for fear of not wanting to be, or, 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 or the fear of not being liked. And even in leading church in the city, if I can be completely honest, in the first few years, I was terribly driven working 70, 80, sometimes 90 hours a week because in my mind, church in the city had to succeed in order for me to find acceptance with my peers. There was no way that, 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 that I would ever feel a sense of worth or a sense of value or a sense of being lovable unless I was able to say that church in the city succeeded. Some of the, those struggles still exist today. One of the things I fear perhaps more than anything is someone saying to me, you didn't do enough or you weren't there for me when I needed you. Uh, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm being a little bit too vulnerable right now, but, but those, those are some of the things that I fear because I'm finding my righteousness in the wrong things. The truth of the gospel is, is that true freedom is only possible when we understand that our righteousness comes from what Jesus has done on the cross for us. True freedom only comes when we take the faith that we are trying to put in our own efforts, control or acceptance or religion or power, and we say there is no value in those things, but Jesus, I trust completely in your love for me. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that, that God has taken the sin that was upon us and placed it upon Jesus. But not just that, he took the righteousness and the holiness and the perfection of Jesus and he placed it upon us. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the perfection of his son. I've been clothed in Jesus. I am being, I've been placed in Jesus. So that that's what makes me righteous. When the devil comes to accuse me, my, my response should not be to try and defend myself. My response should be, go and speak to Jesus because he's my defense attorney. He's my advocate. He's the one who's fulfilled the, the, and, and impressed the Father so that I don't need to. Paul says in Philippians 3, whatever was to my profit, I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider those things garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from a life of rule-keeping or a life of, of being liked or a desire to be successful or be in control, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. And friends, can I say this is not a truth? The gospel is not just something that we get once off and then we say, well, we've done with that truth. But this is a truth that we need to be preaching to ourselves almost daily. There are, this is, there are good days when I realize that you are not my righteousness. And then there are bad days when I have to remind myself, if I can be completely honest, even before I came up to preach this morning. I was standing here saying, Jesus, thank you that you are my righteousness and not my performance in the pulpit. That I don't live on your approval. Because you know what happens if I do? I start to lead scared. I start to lead for my sake and not for your sake. 
Jesus alone is our righteousness. Am I acceptable? Are you acceptable? Are you loved? Yes, but it's not because of what you've done. It's because of Jesus's undeserved grace and favor poured out on your life. Genesis chapter one, verse 28 says, and God blessed them. And God blessed them. They hadn't done anything yet. God hadn't given Adam and Eve a task, but it just says God, because of his goodness, blessed them. That's the undeserved love that the Father pours upon us. Value, love, thirdly, we nearly finished, purpose. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Friends, ultimately, ultimately, you and I are created for one thing above everything else, and that is to be in relationship with God. A friend of mine back in South Africa used to say this, and at first the saying annoyed me, but I actually have grown to love it. He used to say, we're not called to be human doings, we're called to be human beings. We don't find our worth by the, by the doing, we find our worth by being, being in the presence of God. We're ultimately created for relationship with God. But in that relationship within every single one of us, there's this sense that God has created us to bring a unique contribution to the planet. There's the sense of what am I here for? What have, what have I been called to do? What is my, my contribution? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 The verse should come up behind you. It's an amazing verse that kind of gives us insight into that. For we are God's workmanship, God's handiwork, Paul writes, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word workmanship, that word handiwork is the Greek word poema, which is where we get the English word poem from. So what what the Bible is teaching us is that, that we are a piece of art created by God. Any artist would know, and there are a few of them here, that, that the art that you produce is the, is the reflection of what is inside of you. And, and so just think about what Paul is writing here. We are God's workmanship. We are God's artwork. We are God's creation of beauty, a reflection of what God is in here, what God has produced in each of us. Part of God's workmanship is the fact that God has fashioned unique and specific gifts in each of us. 1 Peter chapter 4 says that. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And part of God's workmanship is God fashioning beauty and blessing on every single circumstance in life, both good and difficult. Romans 8, 28 tells us that. And we know that for those who love God, all things, our weaknesses, our failures, the opposition of the devil, the delays in our life, all things are are used by God to work together for good for those who, who are called according to his purpose. Friends, could I suggest that some of our biggest frustrations in life come when we spend so much time wanting other people's gifts or wanting to set the agenda ourselves on how God gets to work in our lives. If we were just to take the time to discover what are those unique gifts that God has given us 
And what are those things that God is doing in our lives that we need to surrender to? Things would become a whole bunch easier. Isaiah 49 is a, is a verse that someone spoke over Deb and I about 15 or 20 years ago. Isaiah 49 says this, He made me into a polished arrow, and he concealed me in his quiver. At the time, we did not want to become a polished arrow. We wanted to become a flourishing tree. But think of what a branch has to go through in order to become a polished arrow. It needs to be stripped away of its, of its sub-branches and of its leaves and of its buds. It needs to be, the bark needs to be removed. It needs to be uh, uh, sharpened and hardened and, 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 and skillfully put together. And the reason why we struggled so much through that season is not because we surrendered to the reality of what God was doing in our lives, because we wanted to be something else. We wanted to be that flourishing tree that everyone could notice and everyone could see. And yet God was fashioning something else in us. C.S. Lewis comments on that. I, I love this quote. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But soon, God starts making some alterations, and it doesn't seem to make much sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's adding a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, one fit for a king, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Am I unique? Do I have a purpose? I want to say absolutely. Every single one of us have a calling and a destiny and a plan and a purpose. And by your unique experiences, you are positioned to reach people that no one else in this room is able to reach. I'm going to ask the worship team if they wouldn't mind coming up. We're going to end in a couple of minutes as we bring this into land. So I asked the question at the very beginning. I said to you guys that Madonna was searching for the verdict on whether she can consider herself valuable and important. And, and so the question we've got to ask ourselves again is, is, what is the verdict? Are we worth it? Are we acceptable? Are we unique? Paul gives us some amazing insights in 1 Corinthians 4 to that question. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. I want you to pause there for a moment. And I want you not to lose sight of what Paul is actually saying when he says, I don't care, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Friends, I, I think you would agree that sometimes life does feel like we're in a courtroom. People evaluating and judging us as to whether we fit the standard or, or kind of reach the bill. Just like in a courtroom, there are, there are witnesses for the prosecution and witnesses for the defense. And sometimes that's what life feels like. The witness for the prosecution sometimes seems to have the upper hand. You're not doing enough of this. You're not doing that. You're not pleasing me in this way. You haven't achieved this. You, own, you don't own that. Sometimes we go through life when it seems like the defense is winning. No, 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 no. I, I, I feel confident in the righteousness I have in Jesus. 
But at the end of the day, friends, it feels like often we're always in a courtroom, a court of law, being evaluated and not celebrated, but evaluated by others. That's not ever God's heart. Paul goes on to say this, I don't even judge myself. Can I say, friends, that you and I are sometimes our own worst enemy? We are sometimes the best witness for the prosecution. Sometimes the devil gets to call on us because we give in so easily to the negative thinking that we have about ourselves. But Paul goes on to say this at the end. He says, my conscience is clear. It is the Lord who judges me. And what that means, what Paul is saying, he's saying, friends, you know what? The verdict is in. The verdict might not be in from friends and family and from the world. The verdict might not, be in, might not even be in from yourself. But the verdict from the one who counts the most, Jesus Christ, that verdict is in. And that verdict is, you are acceptable. And you are loved. And you are worth it. And you are valuable. And you do have a unique purpose and a, and a unique calling here on earth. Because of that, you can begin to fulfill your gifts and callings, not so that others can notice and so that you can fill up the emptiness that's in your own heart. You are able to do what Nate's going to preach next week, love your neighbor, not because you're doing it so that you can get a sense of pride or a sense of accomplishment, but simply because Jesus says you are already worth it. In a court of law in the world... The verdict comes as a consequence of your performance. In the court of heaven, the verdict comes despite your performance. And because of that verdict, you are able to go and utilize the gifts that God has given you. Tim Keller calls that self-forgetfulness. And I'm going to end off by reading Philippians 2. And as soon as we're done, we're going to sing, uh, go back into that song, He Loves Us. Oh, how he loves us. Philippians 2. When we get this right, friends, when we develop that self-image that is based on God's word, we begin to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But rather, in humility, we begin to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own self-interests, but rather to the interests of others. Can I ask that we stand together this morning? We're going to end just going back into that song for a couple minutes and then we're going to have an opportunity just to pray over one another and, and trust that God would help us to settle some of these issues that His verdict is in. God loves us. We don't need our performance or, or, or anything to, to, to give us that sense of righteousness. Our righteousness comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. Thanks for listening to this Church in the City podcast. For more information about our church or to listen to other messages, visit churchinthecity.us.